Hi, everybody. Uh, good late afternoon, because it is late afternoon here uh, in New Jersey. Uh, welcome to Conversations with Calvin, We the Species. Uh, it is uh, Wednesday, the 21st of July, just to put things in. Uh, and uh, I have been uh, anticipating this time with Brian Finney, uh, who the title of this uh, interview uh, is Brian Finney, a Professor Emeritus of California State University and, and an award prize-winning author uh, of nine books, uh, of which a couple we're really going to plunge into. Uh, and uh, uh, as I always so often say, Brian and I were connected by the universe, which consists of uh, uh, social media, and, and that's how we got put together, uh, and not that long ago, and it was like an instant, uh, instant chemistry. Uh, I was so intrigued by Brian's background. We're going to kind of jump into that uh, momentarily uh, on the fact that Brian and I are kind of contemporaries. I, I kind of relish that fact. Uh, you know, in the last week I'm interviewing a 22-year-old, and that's wonderful. But to have uh, a contemporary, um, and um, so uh, Brian is such an interesting, uh, such an interesting life. Um, why don't you take it away a little bit, and and if you could do a little brief bio, which actually is kind of what I would want to touch on first. You know, you're you're growing up. Uh, you're growing up uh, in London, in England, during World War II. So take it Thank away, you. Brian. Welcome. Thank you, Calvin. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking me. Um, yeah, I, I was actually born in London, um, and uh, I was evacuated uh, when uh, the air raids started, like nearly every London kid. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I was evacuated to a very unusual school, which was on the Welsh border and was run by this very advanced German Jewish educationist who had left Germany, uh, you know, in the mid thirties because of Hitler. And the, the majority of the children in the school were refugees from Germany or other parts of Europe they, who were Jews. Wow. So, um, for them, the boarding school, which is what it was, uh, was a home. I mean, they didn't go home during the vacations, although I did. I was part of a small English contingent that was there, if you like, to stop them doing what we did to the Japanese, you know, which was to close the whole thing down and incarcerate them. And indeed, you know, the school did stay open and it was almost self-supporting. I mean, it, you know, it grew nearly all of its own food, for example. Wow. So that, that, was, that was a very unusual early childhood, like elementary school. Then, then I went, I, my, my parents split up early on in my life. So I spent a lot of time in boarding schools um, and I went to what the English call a grammar school. Um, we call that. that, I call that also grammar school. Oh, you do, okay. Well, yes, I do. Well, I mean, it, it went back to the, to the English Civil War. Um, you know, and all the houses were split up into leaders for and against, um, you know, the king or parliament. <laughs> um, 
And um, that was in, in Oxfordshire, just, you know, a few, like less than a hundred miles out of London. Um, I do remember though, uh, going back to London for uh, vacations and um, this was after, you know, the, the, the normal bombing had stopped, but when towards the end of the European war, the Germans had developed what was called the V2 rocket, which they sent over in large numbers to London, um, which therefore meant that nearly every night I was woken up wow. uh, in a bad temper and carried wow. down to the air raid shelter at the end of the garden. Wow. You know? And you could, you, those v, v, V2s, you would actually hear them stop, the engine would stop. And you then, I forget how many seconds you counted, something like 12 or 16 seconds before it dropped. So if you could actually hear it, you were still safe. Oh. <laughs> if you didn't hear it, you know, then bad luck. So that, that was, uh, it was, it was a, an exceptional childhood in a way. But of course, we all thought of it as a, you know, big adventure. And, you know, a bomb, bombed out house was a wonderful playground for us to climb wow. around in. Wow. And my father was what they called an air raid warden who, he, he had a bad chest and wasn't accepted into the horses. And so he had to spend his time on the roof watching the bombs come down and say, oh, there's a fire started, you know, in such and such a house, wow. which was a scary occupation night after night. He was an artist, full-time artist, which of course he wasn't, that wasn't earning him anything during the war. So um, that, was, that was childhood in London. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. So, um... You, you wound up going to school uh, at London University, but- No, actually, uh, I actually went to Reading University just for my first degree. Okay, okay. Yeah. But uh, I, I would love to ask you uh, about, uh, you are a veteran of the RAF. Um, okay, well, um, when I finished, you know, Eng the English uh, undergraduate degree takes three years. So when I had finished that, I was 21 years old. I still uh, was in that category where, um, you know, we were subject to national service. They stopped national service almost the next year, but mm -hmm. I was unfortunately mm -hmm. early enough for that. So I decided, okay, if I've got to do this, then I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do a three-year officer uh, commission, uh, and I became a, an education officer in uh, what we call transport command in, a, in an air station out in Oxfordshire again. Um, where basically I spent a lot of my time teaching airmen mm -hmm. um, either to, to qualify for um, promotion within the ranks, you know, like from corporal to sergeant, or I spent a lot of time uh, getting them qualified for university entrance uh, because they were on national service as well, right. a lot of them. Right. And um, that, I mean, that, I, I mean, I enjoyed that, although I, I don't like. I didn't like being in the hands of an authority that could do whatever it wanted with you. And I remember once the, 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 the station commander nearly ran my wife off the road in his car when she was <laughs> on a bicycle and <laughs> being unable to do anything about it because otherwise I might land up in some right. remote island in the Pacific Ocean or whatever, you know, be posted there. At any rate, um, I, I, uh, I found 
in, in the middle of those three years, we had the Suez crisis. And the Suez crisis meant- That was that, 57, right? Yeah, exactly. We had, um, yeah, exactly. We, we had uh, a lot of uh, airmen who were about to take their qualifying exams of one sort or another, and who were whisked over to Cyprus because of the crisis. And that made me think, uh, here I am an education officer, which is not exactly this, you know, I'm not a pilot <laughs> or a navigator. And um, so I'm, I'm not gonna do this again. I'm not gonna go into the margin of, of the thing. I'm gonna go straight into the center of it. And I chose to go into the car industry in England um, as a, what they call the graduate apprentice, where you went for a month to every single department or every single factory. And then you landed up as an internal consultant. So um, that that actually lasted. I mean, I was I was in industry first of all in the car industry, and then I transferred and was given the post of uh, production controller of a factory making quartz crystals for the equivalent of AT and D. And uh, I was brought in because the sales department said. Uh, we can't get enough quartz crystals to satisfy our customers. And, you know, there's an eight or 10 week delay, you know, when, from when we receive an order, et cetera. We need you to increase the production. So um, I did that. Uh, within a year, I doubled the production. Wow. And as soon as my chart, you know, reached up like that, uh, the sales department turned around and said, whoa, whoa, I mean, we got it wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, we don't have that many customers. It was just a backlog. And I think you're going to have to return the production to what it was when you first came. <laughs> so, so I watched this chart, you know, go up and then go down to where it started. And I thought, and, you know, and the car industry is exactly the same. Boom, slump, boom, slump. I thought, do I really want to spend my entire life, you know, producing more zooms and, you know, the, the, the reverse? And I decided no. And so I applied for a position at what was an administrative position in London University mm -hmm. in uh, the equivalent of what uh, we would call the extension department, okay. where I would be hiring teachers uh, and, and lecturers and, and practitioners um, from all of the arts and make them available to the London public, mainly the adult public, mainly um, in the evenings or weekends. Um, and that was a great job. It, it also allowed me to do some part-time teaching myself, but only a small amount. Uh, but it did enable me to um, employ, you know, some of the best practitioners in England in their own um, particular specialities. I mean, I worked with the British Film Institute. I worked with the Institute of Contemporary Arts. I worked with the National Gallery oh. and the Poetry Society and so on. Oh. So, um, you know, it was very, I mean, it, it, it was wonderful to be able to just go wherever you wanted to and hire somebody and put, put them in front of the public. I did, I did, um, well, what shall I say? I went a stage too far with one uh, incident. Uh, and the National Gallery, I, I would get the specialist of whatever the play was that was being produced new. And I would have them come and talk to the complete audience half an hour before the play, or an hour rather, an hour before the play. And I thought, 
this is ridiculous, you know, it's the print, one, one audience gets to hear this guy. Um, and, you know, that maybe there are, what, what should we say, 100 performances? So why don't we record it? And then it'll be available for them to see, you know, again and again, each audience. So I had this uh, Don, as they call them, from Oxford University, very well known, um, and uh, also, you know, married to a very well known novelist, Iris Murdoch, and who had had, in his earlier times, had problems with stuttering. But um, I took references and they all said, no, no, I've never heard him stuff in the last few years, he's fine. So I had him there with a huge audience. The new play was Othello. Um, and, you know, we had the, the lights on him and we had the mic in front of him and we had the video camera in the you know, central aisle. And he announced that his subject uh, for that evening's talk was the difference in Othello between love Mm -hmm. and lust <laughs> from then onwards it kept on coming back of course to those two terms because that was what he was talking about he stuttered every time he got to the l word wow and the audience was extremely embarrassed and wrote furious letters to sir peter hall who's the director of the national theater and that was the end of our experiment you know <laughs> videotaping these talks which was a shame because i think it would have been really you know right. helpful for audiences right. We were going to play it so that while they were drinking their coffee or what have you before the play, they could actually see it on the video screen and listen to it. But, Interesting. Yeah. No, I just have to make one comment to to the audience uh, about the RAF, since I'm a little bit of a history buff, uh, and and um, you and I discussed this uh, like last week when we chatted, but the respect. Uh, that I have for the RAF and, and, and what they did. And of course, you know, the famous quote, never have, never have so few done so much for so many. Uh, but if you really, really, really do an intricate study of World War II uh, and what could have been and what was, uh, the RAF basically saved the war. Uh, I, well, I agree. I mean, it, it, Britain would have been occupied without. Oh yeah, and and then what would we have done? Where would we have had a, a place yeah. to to launch? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so the RAF simply uh, that collection of fighters, just some of the most remarkable accomplishments in world history. That's my feeling, and yeah. And, and, yeah. and and actually a, a, a confession to you, if you'll take my confession. But when I was researching you um to do this interview i saw raf and i said done deal <laughs> i said done deal this is what what a uh, you know i mean yes you you weren't um uh you, you you weren't a pilot in, in world war ii but my goodness to just have been in that that special place so okay. um can i just say that you know in, in war times, so to speak, I was a, I, my job was intelligence officer. I had to break codes and, you know, wow. send signals, etc. Wow. So. so all this background, and, and then uh, you, um, with your schooling, uh, 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 you, you do a research trip to, to California. Um, uh, 
and uh, that you were researching uh, D.H. Lawrence um, and doing a biography of Christopher Isherwood, and, and you, you wound up interviewing Laura Huxley, uh, who I just asked you before we went on air, she related to Aldous uh, Huxley, which told me she was a second wife. And, and I think once a day, I, I quote Aldous uh, Huxley. Um, yes, I do. Uh, it's a brave new world. Uh, and, yeah. And so can you talk about that first trip to California? Uh, sure. The, the, the first trip was back in like 1971 and was for the PhD on, on Lawrence. And I, I actually split it. The, in 1970, I did all the Eastern uh, universities. And then in 1971, I did uh, Austin, Texas, and the, the, you know, both UCLA and Berkeley. Um, and what I was doing was I was looking primarily at the original manuscripts that Lawrence either wrote or had typed and then wrote, you know, made, wrote corrections on, etc. And I, I mean, this was well worth doing because, you know, I, I would find, for example, that the printer had skipped over two pages of something he'd written in a notebook. Um, and that every edition of Lawrence had missed out those two pages that should be there and were his, and I got them restored, of course. Or uh, I found a story that um, his, his uh, publisher couldn't find the second half of. They lost the second half. So he rewrote it much later on with a second half that didn't belong to the first. I mean, he was a different guy by then and, and thematically broke in half. And again, I was able in, uh, I think it was Yale, to find the original wow. earlier. So, wow. that was, I mean, that was a very, you know, at that time, nobody had done work on the short stories of Lawrence. And, wow. And so it was a very rewarding, you know, uh, thing to do. Um, in fact, in uh, in UCLA, uh, which was, um, I discovered the uh, what was it now? It was the manuscript of one of his later novellas um, called "The Man Who Died," which was a retelling of um, the life of Christ, where he he actually after the crucifixion had recovered in some country. Um, which I say courtyard, looked after by the farmers and eventually issued back out as an ordinary man swearing never to sacrifice his life again. And um, the, uh, the American public, when that first version was published, were some of the public was extremely outraged, of course, you know, at that. And so he wrote a second part of it in which um, Jesus uh, meets up with the priestess of Isis in Israel. Uh, well, it wasn't Israel then, Palestine. And um, they finally um, have sex together, uh, at which point uh, they, the Romans are pursuing them and they both go back in to other directions. So in other words, it was just the second year cycle. It was a cycle of life and death, life and death. You know, that's what Lawrence was really trying to do. Right. I, was, I had to... UCLA would not allow me to photocopy or um, this. I had to read it into a tape recorder oh, in wow. the research room. Wow. And all the graduates who were, you know, ostensibly pursuing their studies dropped what they were doing and listened to every word of the story as I was doing this, even though I was trying to, you know, take it quietly. Of course, it, it had its embarrassing moments. But <laughs> I kept yeah. going. <laughs> but that was my first. That was my first introduction to LA. 
then I had, uh, then I decided to write the biography of Christopher Isherwood, which itself um, finally actually won a, a national prize in England. And Isherwood by this stage, I mean, he was a very famous writer of the 30s in England. Uh, he set a whole style. Um, and uh, of course, he was, he was gay. He was a great friend of W.H. Auden. The two of them, just before the war broke out, emigrated to New York. Auden loved New York. Isherwood hated it. And he settled in Santa Monica in California, which is you know, right part of Los Angeles in, on the coast here. So I came out here to interview him and to interview all his friends um, in order to write the biography. And to do that, I actually got the chairman of the English department of the UCLA to give me a couple of uh, summer courses for one for graduates, one for undergraduates. Um, because, and he was gay too, so he was all for you know, getting the biography. Sure. And I, I interviewed a whole range of different people who knew him, of course. One of them was, you know, he was very friendly with Aldous Huxley, but Huxley, of course, was dead by then. Um, and so I interviewed Laura Huxley. Um, she well. lived up, up in Santa Monica Mountain somewhere. I can't remember quite where. And at the end of the interview, after I finished, she turned, she, she was known uh, as a psychic, um, but I'm, you know, I'm a great rationalist and skeptic. And she turned around to me and she said, uh, you know, you're going to come back here. I said, oh, yes. She said, yeah, no, no, I mean, you're going to come back here to stay. Wow. So I said, oh, really? No, wow. this was, this was back in the later 70s. And um, I went away thinking, oh, these psychics, you know. Wow. And, in in the in 1987, I came out here permanently, and and have lived in LA ever since. So she couldn't have been more right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is that I guess that changed uh, a little bit of your skepticism about psychics. Um, wow, isn't yeah. that interesting? Mm -hmm. uh, not now someday we can talk about that kind of stuff because um i've lived it i've seen it um and and it's quite an unusual talent i don't have it but um, some friends of mine do but anyway um so uh you're you're in um uh, you know you're in la and you you begin teaching so you you taught um you taught at several uh california universities uh, can you just talk about that a little bit Sure. I mean, what made me eventually, you know, come out here was that I'd become a sort of chair in the department in London by this stage. And this was during the Maggie Thatcher years, and Thatcher was making severe cuts of adult education, including university adult education. And I was having to execute them. I mean, you know, I'd get a smaller budget, and I had to make it work somehow. And I thought, why am I doing this? You know, I, I went over in the summer to UCLA or to USC another summer, and it was really enjoyable because all I did was teach. And you know, I, I, all I had to do was interact with students. So I thought, I'm gonna do that. So I went and interviewed for jobs in New York, got nowhere, and thought, hell with it, I'm just going. Um, and meantime, I'd also met, uh, the, the first time I came over in 1986, a year before I immigrated, I met Jackie, my wife, uh, so there was a further, very personal incentive going there. Sure. And, um, or my wife to be at any rate. And um, 
at, at any rate, uh, I, I reached the point where I, the day before I was flying out, everything was packed up in my apartment. Um, the phone was about to be disconnected and it went. And I picked it up and this woman's voice said, this is the chair of UC Riverside. And um, we interviewed you in New York um, and you were our second choice. And the first choice, it turns out, has already signed a contract with another university. So would you like a visiting professorship? Wow. And I said, well, of course I would. Wow. And she said, oh, well, in that case, you know, you've actually been paid since the beginning of this month. <laughs> so wow. I landed very, very easily. Um, and that visiting professorship lasted for two years. And I would say that the only minor disadvantage was Riverside is like, uh, at that time, was about just under two hours commute drive from Venice in California, where I live on the coast here. But otherwise, it was a great job. Um, and after that, I suddenly got thrown on the market and learned the true meaning of three-way flyer because one, one semester, for example, I remember I was teaching at the University of Southern California, UCLA, and California State University, Long Beach. Um, and my wife would say to me, are you sure you got the right notes? Do you remember, are you going to the right location? And <laughs> uh, you know, because you know what vague professors are like. But at any rate, I survived that. Um, and eventually I decided that whereas USC and UCLA were, you know, were, were both gave me big classes of maybe a hundred students where I would lecture and then the graduate students would have seminars with, with the undergraduates, um, which I think is the more, you know, fun bit of it because you're actually interacting with them. Right. In, Cal, in the Cal State system, the classes are, you know, roughly speaking 30 or in the graduate side, you know, like 12 or, or so, 15. And I much preferred having small class classes to teach because I could get to know the students by name and so on. So I eventually settled for California State University. And finally, the chair there did some kind of um, magical trickery that persuaded the administration very late on to take me on to a tenured appointment. And um, I, I was, I, I claim, I'm sure I'm right. I must have been the oldest assistant professor in the entire States. <laughs> but I managed to uh, quickly promote, get promoted, you know, to associate and then full professor within five years or so. Um, and meantime, at least, you know, you weren't suffering from a paper interview. I mean, they, they, they took what I was being paid from from Riverside as a sort of marker. So I wasn't being paid like most assistant officers. So that, I mean, that, that finally worked out. It was a lot of work. And, you know, when you're um, a lecturer, when you're you know, adjunct, um, you don't get to know what you're teaching, what courses you're teaching until maybe the week or even days before the beginning of the semester. So, you know, wow. that's pretty tough too. Yeah. Wow. I have just a uh, just a minute amount of identification because I did teach at Rutgers uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a course in career explorations, explorations, uh, and 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 I think I mentioned you that for me that was what you do 
it to me is one of the most marvelous things, undertakings to, to mold and to teach young people. And, and for me to have been offered uh, to teach uh, at Rutgers, my alma mater, with no teaching background whatsoever, uh, uh, no credentials whatsoever, uh, uh, was, uh, it's kind of a, uh, kind of a paraphrase of Martin Luther King, you know, I've been to the mountaintop and, and, and that teach, that's why I, I so admire, and I was so thrilled to be able to sit down with you and, and chat because, uh, I have such great admiration and respect for teaching. And I did it myself for a little bit and I climbed the mountaintop. I was on a mountaintop and I, taught students um so anyway yeah, um, probably you were better you were a better teacher than not you know being the sort of additional qualified one because you, you were closer to how the students felt and, and how they learned and so on than probably men you know they they gave me all a's and b's uh i was kind of you know they they grade you at Rutgers, so that stu the students grade yeah. the teachers. And 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 and, and listen, uh, I I I was a nervous guy of every class. Um, I mean, uh, I was nervous because I wanted to do well. I knew what I was talking about, but um, but and, and when you know the the semester was over and they graded me, I got all A's and B's. I said, oh wow, I never got grades like that when I was a student. So it, it was, uh, but that, that, that's my, uh, uh, the energy with which I, I, you know, I reached out to you because of your teaching experience. So we've established, you know, your professor emeritus at the Cal State, uh, but let's talk about, and you wrote prior uh, seven nonfiction and, and then you delved into this new world of fiction writing and your first, your first book, which didn't come out too long ago, is called Money Matters, which is right, it's right there behind you. Um, so that's, uh, uh, and, and that was a finalist for the American Fiction Award. Um, yes, it was. Yeah. Which I think is extraordinary, you know, to go from nonfiction all those years and, and then to, so what is Money Matters about? What, is it, what was the process? How did that all come about? It, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I stopped full-time teaching. Um, and I thought, you know, finally I have the freedom I've been wanting all my life. You know, I can choose to do whatever I want. And I thought, I'm not going to produce another academic book, which is what I've done, you know, for the past previous few, few books. Um, what do I really want to do? And before I knew where I was, I found myself writing the outline for, for a novel. Mm. And uh, once I started writing the novel itself, I found that uh, I, I had got the voice of my narrator major character, who was totally different from me. I mean, she was, she was a 27 year old American woman. <laughs> so you couldn't be, couldn't be much further away Correct. than what I was. But the, once I got into her voice, I found the novel just writing itself. It was sort of pouring out of me. And of course, I knew where I was going from the outline. But nevertheless, the outline always takes second place to what the character demands you, you know, you once you start writing. So it's really hard to say that I had a, a very specific motive, although 
I do find that um, I can't just write about individuals. Um, they have to be set within a social and political context for, for me to feel it's significant. And she gets very much involved in the immigration issues and the immigration debate that was going on in 2010, which is when the novel is set, during the midterm election, mm -hmm. when um, Jerry Brown was running against Meg Whitman as governor of California. And Meg Whitman was running on an anti-immigration platform. And then she was found that be employing an, an illegal immigrant, so to speak, you know, somebody who wasn't, who didn't have papers. Uh, not, I mean, at any rate, she lost badly, but that was certainly one of the major issues in the entire campaign. Um, so that, if you like, um, enabled me to feel that what I was writing about in these invented characters was also, they weren't that invented. Um, you know, they were, they were within a real social and political mm -hmm. context, even though they were imagined themselves. And, and that therefore readers could, could relate to the whole situation more readily. Um, and, you know, it's, we, we talk about immigration, of course, you know, in abstract ways of one sort or another, but to actually live the life of, of somebody who is an immigrant, and she wasn't an immigrant, but I have a subplot in which there is an immigrant. He, he was like a Ducker kid, except he wasn't Ducker. And he, halfway through the book, he gets uh, caught and, um, arbitrarily thrown across the border um, to Mexico, which he, he didn't even speak Spanish. Uh, and, wow. you know, he lands up with his grandfather, wow. um, not, not able to communicate with him. You know. So then it, become, then it comes home. That, I mean, that, that's the difference. That, and that's why I, I felt that writing a novel was actually more, more real, if you like. We, we, we would, it would affect people more than just talking about it in the abstract in a non-fiction manner. Well, I can loosely uh, identify with that. Uh, you know, I, I wrote my first novel 12 years ago. I think I mentioned that to you. And, and now I'm, I'm literally a couple of weeks away from finishing my second novel. Well, congratulations, I, Kevin. Yes. That. yes. Uh, um, literally uh, a matter of weeks. Uh, I've been really negligent because I've been doing this. Uh, uh, and I, I spent a couple of years really plunging into it. And, and then the, the pandemic set in and I discovered this, this channel conversation with Calvin. And that's taken all my energies. And, 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 and a month ago, I said, this is ridiculous. I've got a couple more chapters. So I've plunged into that. So... Um, uh, and I also, and this is a good segue, I, I plunged, uh, and I'm not laying any guilt on you, Brian, but you've taken me away. Um, you've taken me away from finishing my novel because I started reading your second novel. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. Uh, no, no, I mean, uh, uh, so we're going to talk about this uh and, and, and I said this before we went on air, I am not a, a literary critic, but uh, I'm almost half done with this. I only got it a couple of days. Uh, and, and I said this to you, it, it, the, what it made me think of watching a, a really, watching a really good mystery movie and, and the music background. Uh, and, and, and that's artistry in itself, keeping you at the edge of your seat uh, and the way you write is like music in the background. 
for me, I'm just waiting and anticipating. Uh, and and it, it is so contemporary because you're talking about the pandemic and you're talking about QAnon. And um, so uh, uh, I'm just saying for the folks out there, this is uh, quite an enjoyable, uh, I can't wait to finish kind of a read. So how did this come about? Um, and there's a lot of uh, Hamlet in here, which I guess you're laughing. Um, so how did this come about, Dangerous Conjectures? Well, it, you know, it was partly, um, it was partly my, my own reaction to what was going on politically, um, which was one of, uh, like, like many um, liberals, was one of outrage. Um, and you know, we're only beginning to see some of the criminality that was going on now. Um, and it was also disbelief. I mean, I still, as I said, I, I am naturally a skeptic. I'm less of a skeptic after Laura Huxley than I was when I still got that, that thing in me. And I couldn't believe that uh, the QAnon conspiracy was getting so much traction. And in, indeed, when, when I started with this book, I, I would talk to friends and say, well, you know, part of what the book is about is, is the, the prevalence, the spread of conspiracy theories in America at this time. And uh, they would say, well, what do you mean? I'd say, well, look, take QAnon. They'd say, QAnon, what's that? You know, at the beginning of 2020, hardly anybody except the QAnon, you know, um, followers, knew anything about it. Uh, and that was the only bit of prescience, if you like, that was there. I don't know, my skeptical self felt, you know, how does it, what is it that captures the followers of QAnon and then it makes it into a growing phenomenon? Um, and so I came up with one of the two major characters, Adam, who like me is a professor, but unlike me, uh, he teaches at Berkeley in 2020 um, as a computer scientist. And so, you know, as a computer scientist, he's absolutely appalled at uh, anything that's not fact-based. Uh, you know, the scientist, he thinks everything ought to be, you know, evidence-based. But he has a wife who works for the ACLU in San Francisco, um, who right at the beginning of the spread of the pandemic, before it even hit the United States, yeah. gets, gets really scared of it. I mean, she's really, she's in fear of her life. She never thought about her life as, you know, having a possible ending. She's in her 30s. And suddenly she sees death waiting for her outside the, the front door, so to speak. And that causes her to make some very bad decisions of one sort or another. The, the least of which is, um, what should I say, encouraging, um, being, accepting, if you like, some conspiracy theories that her best friend keeps on passing to her, like, you know, uh, 5G towers, uh, you know, yeah, I, I read that. I, I read that. Uh, uh, I just can't. I mean, I don't. I I can't process that. How, I know, but it, it had a big following. I mean, yeah. This is. I I just can't. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I mean, this is just absolutely. What a great read, uh, and I'm not saying that. Um, you know, I I don't have to say it, but uh, and 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 actually, for me to have gone this far uh, so quickly is testament to the storytelling. Um, uh, and and actually, yeah, uh, yeah uh, 
and 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 I'll I'll bang this out and um and, and then I'll get back to you to tell you when I finish. But uh it, it's truly great. So um uh and it's so contemporary. I mean it's 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 like it is still relevant. I mean the issues are still relevant. Yeah, it's so uh, um uh, it, it's so it, it it's so required to to really read about this uh, uh, and, and and get a better understanding. I think. By the way, I think. I mean, I I think there's just massive amounts of people who don't really understand conspiracy theories because they don't have it, but they don't understand mm -hmm. just how prevalent you right. know that is and how inculcated that is. Um, I looked that word up before we went on air. Inculcated. Yes, it's a good, it's a good word. Uh, yeah. So inculcated it is, but uh, I'm totally enjoying this. So um, two more questions as we wind down. Uh, um, oh, by the way, I, I do have a, um, I, I do have a Calvin question to ask you. Uh, I, I like to ask this at times, and I think this is a good time. Um, Excluding family or friends, Brian, don't be scared. Uh, <laughs> excluding family or friends, somebody living or dead you would like to spend a day with? Hmm. Um, I, well, there are several, actually. <laughs> well, and you I can mean, say several. There's no rules. I mean, I would, I would love to have spent a day with Shakespeare because I think he, you know, he... He wasn't just a great writer, he was a great liver. He obviously had a fantastic time there in the London theater world and mixing with, you know, the palace and so on. And, uh, otherwise, well, I did, I once, I wrote a book on Beckett and I once got to actually spend a day with Beckett in Paris, not a day, an hour in, in uh, his favorite cafe. I'd love to spend a day with him because I think he is, you know, such an original thinker, and such a realist in a way. Um, so I, I think that would be my second choice. Maybe my third would be D.H. Lawrence, who I've always admired for being way ahead of his time in terms of the environment, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, the over, what should I say, the, the, the overemphasis on the intellectual uh, and the will as opposed to emotional feelings that, you know, inspired all his books, really. That, that would be it. That's great. Uh, and this is totally... Uh... Totally irrelevant and random, but um, I went to the same high school as Philip Roth. I love his writing. In fact, I'm I'm reading one of his books at the moment. Same high school. He he's actually he, uh, we grew up in the same section in Newark, and just about every novel goes back to the weak wake <laughs> section in Newark, and there are characters uh, I know because uh, he was uh, six, seven, eight years older than me, so I never was in high school at the same time right uh, i know of the energies where he derives so many of his stories uh and it's funny talking to you you know now as you're a writer and a professor um uh and i'm i uh, if i could be uh, a type of writer it would be like philip roth but that's just a that's just a dream so um Look, for me too. <laughs> I mean, I think he's a great writer. Yeah, just uh, beyond. And you know, it's funny. I I, I watched a, a documentary uh, on on Philip Roth. He did a lot of writing standing up. Did yes. you know that? 
Yes, I did. Yes. He actually stood up at a table and wrote. He had. He also had back problems, if I remember rightly. But but he did. Yeah, he did. He did most of the time he wrote standing up. Yeah, I uh, I, I, I I'm I'm, ama I'm amazed about that, and and I get a kick out of. Uh, I, I just got a kick out of him uh, because, you know, that that section of Newark that he writes about so so often, uh, uh, he brings it up. Uh, the plot against America was Newark. I mean, it's all uh, it's all Newark. Um, but um, I just thought I'd, I'd share that with you. No, no, we, we yeah. share the share the yes. thing. So uh, a couple, uh, just to wind down, two things, two, two more little questions, uh, uh, completely in a different direction. Uh, how do you like living in Venice Beach? I, I mean, I've been, I, 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 when I first came in 1987, that's where I settled. It's a Is that a culture place. shock to you, that kind of a place? Well, definitely, yeah. But at the same time, a nice culture shock. Sure. And, and in a way, I mean, you know, it's so different from traditional American suburbia. You know, it, it, at that time, it was filled with, you know, on the one hand, bohemians, one sort or another. On the other hand, uh, artists of one kind or another, a big artist community. It still does have a small artist community left. And of course, it's, you know, the, the surfing capital of the, of the world. I mean, I look out, I'm having breakfast and looking through the, the window. Mm -hmm. There are these these guys, you know, going down irrespective of the weather, you know, with their surfboards on their heads. Well, it's, it's great. It's a great community. It's really great. It, it has been, a, you know, over the last quarter century or so, um, to some extent, invaded by and partially taken over by, tech, you know, rich tech, tech workers. Mm -hmm. And the therefore that the price of the housing has gone. You know, sure, crazy. that's what usually happens. Yeah. Um, finally, Brian, uh, yeah. uh, future think. Uh, <laughs> um, plans for the future? Of All right. Um, to, to tell tell the truth, at the moment, I, I've got the equivalent of writer's block, but it isn't writing that I'm blocked with. Okay. It's the I, uh, translating the idea I have into, um, you know, a dramatic, realizable, concrete, object I, I would like to write i would like to, in some way or another write a novel that reflected the growing disparity of wealth between the very rich and the very poor which is quite i mean you know we've just seen a couple of billionaires go and yeah. fly themselves into outer space that's what right horrible, horrible waste of money as far as i'm concerned no kidding no <laughs> kidding so um but i cannot yet you know i started off with the idea of maybe a homeless woman um you know put camping, uh, parking a van outside a billionaire's residence and him trying to get rid of her and failing, and then eventually having to let her in because the van goes up in flames or something. And then slowly the two of them actually, you know, meeting, yeah, understanding what, what it is that's so different about the other. But I, they don't, they haven't, they haven't become real for me. Okay, yet. So okay. But, by the way, uh, so intriguing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to steal your idea, but so intriguing. Uh, you, you know, that there, there's so much to be said about that topic. Uh, uh, yeah. I used to quote that the, the 88, 88 richest people in the world have more wealth than the poorest three and a half billion. 
it's a shocking it's a shocking statistic and and you know you got to process that uh uh and and um and I'm an environmentalist, and 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 yeah. and if we, you know, uh, you know, the fires that are out there, oh. Oh. Well, you, over the west, you're even suffering from the smoke on the east coast. We are, and, yeah. and, and and by the way, there's all kinds of health alerts. Yes, I, ha I heard. So bad you. here, three thousand yeah. miles away. Yeah. So uh, but that's just one small thing, and then you know the the Great Salt Lake. Which has been around a million years, uh, it, it's at its lowest level in a hundred years, and, and I know. half of it is dust. Like a disaster movie. And then uh, uh, a Saturday, I interview a, 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 an, an Amazon. He lives right near the Amazon. Uh, uh, he's a uh, environmentalist, and um, actually, he's from England. Really? Mm -hmm. Yes, he's a countryman, and and. Uh, uh, we met here and, and, and he graduated uh, from college in England and, and they did a, a three-week trip to the Amazon rainforest and he stayed for 30 years. <laughs> so his, his thing is trying to, but anyway, uh, the, I'm, I'm going off topic. Uh, but that's an interesting premise that you have and, and, and do develop it. So where we've now uh, we're kind of winding down this time with you has been, um, it's really been very special, precious to me uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, uh, the channel is always open to you to come back and chat because uh, this channel is evolving and and i would love that uh and and i i just want to thank you so much for your graciousness uh and and your time um and also thank you for this well i'd like, uh, like to thank you calvin yeah you're giving me the opportunity to share yes so uh, again uh brian i thank you so much uh and i wish you only good things and please do come back thank, thank you. you thank you Bye-bye.